The recording that you're about to listen to is a talk from the City Bible Forum. We would appreciate you respecting our copyright by not making copies of this talk or altering the content in any way. We hope that you find the material beneficial. If you would like more information on the City Bible Forum, you can visit us on the web at citybibleforum.org. Hi everyone, welcome to the Forum. Particularly if you haven't been here for a while, it's great to see you. Today we're looking at the topic of loving God. What does that look like? What does that involve? Sounds like a bit of a fluffy subject, but I'm sure that Ian will will put some flesh on the bones. Uh, During the meeting, you can text your questions to me and you'll see my mobile number come up on the screen. I'll just forward that. Yep, up the top there is my mobile number for your questions or you can write them down on the slip of blank paper inside your program and we'll collect those up and pass them on to myself and I'll ask Ian or you can just stick up your hand. I'm going to read two of the Bible passages that that, uh, Ian's going to be referring to today, the second and fourth one, so Luke 7 and 1 John 4. Then I'll hand over to Ian. He'll speak for about 20 minutes and then it's your turn for questions and for comments. Luke 7, verse 47. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. And then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And down to 1 John 4, down the bottom, verse 19. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother he has seen cannot love the God he has not seen. And we have this command from him, The one who loves God must also love his brother. Well, good afternoon. Um, I became a Christian when I was 19. It was a reluctant uh, conversion, as I've shared with some of you in the past. I was convinced the whole thing was true. There was a God who was too big to fight with. So it was a kind of a lay down your arms and allow the big foreign invader to take over. And uh, I was was deeply committed and convinced, and it was true, and it mattered, and I was keenly Christian and I went to church and I went to a youth group and I had prayer meetings. I went to the prayer meetings and um, I found the prayer meetings irritating because every now and then people would would use the wrong language about God. And I remember a moment with, a moment of real clarity, I still remember it as as if it was yesterday, um, where a girl called Pam in the prayers said to God, we love you. And I thought, no we don't. And then she made it more irritating because she used the singular, I love you, she said. And, and I remember thinking, that's just the wrong language, lady. Nobody loves God. I knew that. I was 19. Nobody loves God. You can respect God. You can be thankful to God. You can fear God. Um, but you can't love God. Uh, it's just the wrong language um, to use in that relationship. And yet... As you've got in front of you, at the top of the page there, that very well-known statement where Jesus summarises the whole Old Testament law, the whole law that comes down from Sinai, as 
the dual commands to love and to love God first. The first and great commandment. Verse 25, Jesus answered, is to uh, the Lord Israel, hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. So Jesus, at that point, disagreed with me. Dear, dear. But he, he seemed to think loving God was at the very heart and soul of it. And, and I think it's fair to say, in fact, I'm sure it's fair to say, that the love, love is at the heart of Christianity in a way that it is not true of any other religion or any other philosophy. It doesn't mean it's right, but it's certainly true. That as far as what Jesus brings and, and what the prophets bring before him and the apostles after him, is that according to Jesus, love is at the source of everything, everything. Love is the end and purpose and goal of everything. All of your obligations can be summarised as loving your neighbour. So love is the whole game. It's not just most philosophies of life have a command here or there about love, although there is no command to love your neighbour in the whole of the Quran, which is just doesn't mean it's right or wrong. It's just worth noting the difference. Um, but love, is, it's, it's all about love. But I just think it's the wrong language to use about someone as great and powerful and unlike us. Uh, there's a great confusion about love. Just before I became a Christian, there was a great philosophical love song uh, that I cannot get out of my head. It's like that shocking I feel like chicken tonight ad. Um, so my protest is I have never and will never ever buy anything by them with that label. Maybe the best source in the world, but it's infected my head. I'm going to play payback. But here's the song. Yummy, 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 I've got love in my tummy. And I feel like loving you. You know, those of you who are old. Uh, there's, a, there's similarly trite songs about love in most ages. But it's the idea that love is a, it's a feeling, basically. And it's a feeling that you have to someone. It's an, it's an erotic love feeling is what it is. And it's got its great place in God's design. But it's got no place in conversation between me and the creator and my judge. So I thought. So there's that sort of definition of love. And then there's the, the classic sort of definition I was brought up on after I became a Christian that love is being other person centred that to, to love is to be other person centred well we'll see I think it's true of almost any language in any culture as far as I can understand that there's con the word love is a difficult word it's used to describe your relationship to things you know you, you love chocolate you love ice cream you love prawns um, whatever you love certain activities um Certain, you know, I love my iPhone, I don't, but some people, we use love, and that's not an illegitimate way to use it, it's just it's a way humans have always used language, and that sort of language pops up through the Bible. People love certain things. Uh, and then it's used of how I feel towards my mother, or my relationship with my mother, my relationship to my wife, my relationship to my children, my relationship to my dearest male friends, Tom and others. Love. It's, it's, so it's a, it's a confusing word, you know what I mean? It can, it can mean, it always means you value something, but it is a confusing word. And yet Jesus says, love God with all your heart and mind. And this is the great and first commandment. What on earth does it mean? Well, there's a guy who used to run the holy office of the Inquisition. He then got better known as Pope Benedict. And he's now a very rare man in history. He's a retired pope. Um, and Pope Benedict was in charge of rooting out of the Catholic system false teaching. It's not a position that makes you very popular. Um, the Holy Order of the Inquisition. I didn't know it still existed. Um, but that's what he did. And he is a, he is a, he is a mega brain, Benedict. 
great intellect. Um, and he, he made this comment once that sort of really warmed me to the guy. He said this, Christianity is not a philosophical system. Christianity is not an ethical system. Christianity is not a theological system. It is an encounter of love with God in Christ. So it's not all those things. What is it at its heart? It's a love encounter with God, your maker, in Jesus. Now I thought, well, he might wear red shoes and he might have once been in charge of the Inquisition, but he's got a lot going for him with that sort of thing, in my humble opinion. Notice what he... He's not saying that there is not deep philosophy and theology and ethical stuff tied up with Christianity, but he's saying, if you think that's what Christianity is, and frankly, many people in our culture think that's what it is, particularly about ethics, you've missed the entire point and heart and soul of Christianity. It's like thinking the opera house is about the toilets. You know, it's just... It's actually something... You know, it has got toilets, um, but that's not what it's about. So what the Bible has in, in both the Old Testament, the part of the Bible before Jesus comes, and the New Testament, the part of the Bible after Jesus comes and when he comes, it, it sees that you have an encounter with God first, then comes the call to love. So that as, as, as far as I can find it, there is no call to love God until the fifth book of the Bible, where already the people who have been called on to love God have had an encounter with God. And it's beautifully summed up in the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, where God is speaking to Moses. He's, he's brought the people of Israel out of slavery. They were undergoing genocide. They'd been turned into slaves. Then their taskmasters were killing every baby boy. And then the women just get married off to various other people. And that's how you engage in genocide. So that's what was happening to Israel. It's easy for us to be too sympathetic, I think, to the Egyptian government. They would engage in an unspeakable, murderous, systematic, conscious, deliberate policy to murder a whole people group. And God says, let them go. Pharaoh says, no. Then there's this incremental up, as, as God sends plagues that start off as irritating and annoying up to horrifying when the firstborn child dies. He lets them go. He repents of letting them go and seeks to kill them with his army in the Red Sea and they drown. God brings them in the end to Mount Sinai. They've watched God do some stuff. They've seen God do some stuff for them. Um, and then he says this. This is what God says. That is, you know, Moses, to go back to the people who say this, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and I brought you to myself. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful picture of me carried on eagle's wings. What, a fun, what fun that would be. Uh, and I brought you to myself. You've seen what I've done. I brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you'll be my treasured possession although the whole earth is mine. You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you are to speak to the Israelites. Moses goes down from the mountain, says that to them, and the Israelites say back to God, say back to Moses, we will do everything the Lord has said. They're saying yes. So God is saying, you've had an encounter with, you've watched me, you've heard me, you've seen how I'm on your side. Now do you want to enter covenant with me? And it's after that happens that God explains the relationship in terms of love. You are to love the God that you've met and seen and encountered. And that happens in Exodus 19 and 20, and then it's retold in Deuteronomy 5 and 6, three books later, and that's where Jesus gets this quote from, to love God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength. It's not just said out of the blue. 
It's to a people who have, they know something of God and they're called to love him, whatever that means. It's almost identical with Jesus. You look at him in John's Gospel, the first chapter, come and see, come and see, come and see, come and, see, come and have a look at Jesus. Then you, you watch him and the disciples watch him as he does things and says things and reacts with various people. And then by about chapter 8, he begins to speaking about, follow me, follow me. And by chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and then again in 21, it's love me. So there's this movement from come and see, come and encounter, come and know who I am, then follow, then the language of love begins to take over. So it's, it's an encounter it lies at the heart and centre of Christianity. Um, so it's the meeting with God precedes the love talk. Well, let's look, we're at point three now, travelling fairly fast. I'm sorry about that. The, what is the essence? Let, let, what does it all mean in the end? What is this love stuff? Well... Uh, the, the fancy word for the day is the Hittites. You're red hot and informed on who the Hittites are. Uh, you probably haven't met many Hittites. The empire's been gone for a couple of thousand years now, 3,000 years. Uh, the Hittites pop up occasionally in the Bible. And uh, Uriah the Hittite, one of the men that David betrayed, etc. Um, there was a time in the 19th century when it was not uncommon for learned men, mostly men, let's, let's, we've always got men and women, but it was mostly men, so let's call it men. Learned men mocked the Bible, the Old Testament, for talking about the Hittites, who we knew didn't exist. We had not a shred of evidence outside the Bible that a great big bunch of people called the Hittites existed. And then, ah, we dug up the city, slightly embarrassing, no public apologies, just move on to mocking the next thing. But uh, we, we discovered this great city of the Hittites, which was overthrown in the night. We have no idea what happened to it. Just the Hittites left. And it's one of the great mysteries of history, but it's in the middle of Turkey. And one of the things we discovered in the great city, the great capital, was a bunch of treaties that they made with people. And they would have had a copy, and the people they made the treaty were, but they're all lost. We've got the, the Hittites. And they're called Suzerain Vassal Treaties, which is a pretentious way to say Big King, Little King Treaty, right? the sovereign king and the little guy, the vassal. And, and they make these treaties. And one of the fascinating things is that it's perfectly clear that the covenant between God and Israel made at Mount Sinai is an exact replica of the Hittite suzerain vassal treaty. The beauty is that God chooses a well-known form to communicate the sort of relationship, but he tweaks it. And you may want to ask a question about that later. There are some beautiful differences between when God uses the, the suzerain vassal treaty and when the Hittite kings did. But they've got a very clear form. They've got a prologue where normally the big king will say how wonderful he is and what, you know, and how unarguable with him he is. So there's a prologue, a historical prologue. Then there's the stipulations, what the little guy's supposed to do. To my knowledge, there's no stipulations on what the head guy's supposed to do. It's the little guy, what he's got to do. Then there's witnesses called pagan gods of various sorts, depending on who you're dealing with. And lastly, there's the curses and the blessings, where in the treaty it's very clear, if you break the treaty, I break your head and your kids' heads, and your kids' kids' heads, and your kids' 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 heads. They just blip, you know, you're gone. But if you obey, it'll go well with you. And the sort of things that, the, that were in those treaties were things like pay the taxes. That's what empires are really about, always in money, money, money. Pay the taxes, keep the border secure. When the head guy needs soldiers for some enterprise, send them. Uh, and no covenants with anybody else. If you have a covenant with the Hittite sovereign, you do not have a covenant with the Pharaoh. Right? It's, you know, that's, that's what they're like. And this is exactly the way in which the Ten Commandments... You may, if you know the Ten Commandments from childhood or just general education, you remember how they begin like this. 
I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. That is the classic prologue. It begins short and brief. And it's indicating what God has done for them. It's not terribly threatening. It's actually indicating the past gracious history. Then you have the stipulations. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not use images to worship me. You shall not misuse my name. You shall rest on one of seven days. You shan't, you'll, you'll honour your parents. You won't murder, you won't commit adultery, you won't steal, you won't lie, you won't be greedy. The very strange commands because none of them uh, are what you'd expect from when you look at the Hittite suzerain vassal treaty. But the, the key thing here is this, that love language was used in the Hittite treaties. Language of love was used of the vassal, not of the head guy, but of the vassal up. And it basically means, and then God picks up this language in, the, in this area of covenant. And it means fundamentally at its heart, loyalty. So when, at, at its brutal base, the command to love God is a call to loyalty. That he will be your king. You will have no other king. Therefore, you will follow the commands as laid down. If you read through Deuteronomy, which is a great restatement of the covenant made at Mount Sinai just before Moses dies, you'll find this talk is full of things like loving God, is put side by side with obey the commandments from God, put side by side with walking the ways of God, uh, side by side with forming no other relations with any other gods, uh, not listening to any prophet who tries to lead you away from the one true king God that you've got. And so this is, this is what love means. So you'll just reflect for a minute whether or not you could say that your life is built on an overwhelming loyalty to God. Um, this is what it basically at its root means. So when, when Jesus, when it's picked up in Deuteronomy and by Jesus, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind and all your strength. It's, it's a wholehearted, uh, total devotion to the God who has saved us and brought us to grace. That's what the call is. And, and I love in the, I'm, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but the, the Hebrew scholars I can read tell me that when it says all your soul, it just means all your sort of human energies and humanness. With all your might or strength, it's actually the, the Hebrew word for veriness. It's, it's a sort of an adverb or something. So it's, with, so it's, it's a very unusual, it's the only time the word is used in this way. You've got to love God with all your very. That means. But it's saying, you know, you can be hungry or you can be very hungry. You can be in love or you can be very in love. Uh, and, and so it's saying push it right to the edge. So what, what God is calling for is wholehearted, all-of-life devotion, that every part of your life is under his central control and reflection. And that's where it starts. But it, it, you read the Bible, it moves on from there. So you have things like Luke 7, where this woman comes in and uh, interrupts his dinner party and um, Jesus says this, where does he say it? Therefore I tell you, verse Luke seven forty seven. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved so much. The one who is forgiven little loves little. This is not so much loyalty here, I don't think, is but the, the, the love moves into the other dimensions of the love language, uh, and it's the experience of deep and rich forgiveness that has moved this woman to an extravagant act of love and service for Jesus. It seems a little over the top when people watch it. You see this in the Old Testament when someone like Isaiah, one of the great writing prophets of the Old Testament, um, in, in chapter 5, he's, Isaiah's got a massive high view of the greatness of God, the otherness of God. And yet in chapter 5 he says, um, I will sing you a song about my beloved. 
My beloved had a vineyard. And the beloved is Yahweh, the great God eternal. So the, the prophet moves from chapter 6 where you've got this terrifying vision of the greatness of God. The chapter just before it, he's speaking of God as his beloved, which is the language of love. It's the language of the Song of Solomon, the poetry, the love poetry in the middle of the Old Testament. Where so, It's not just loyalty. That, that it's, it's a gravitational thing that the more, when you begin to orbit your life around God and say, right, I will let you be the controlling, shaping influence on my destiny, in, the, in a sense, in the way that the sun is for the planet Earth. And you begin to orbit God and begin to, you know, live the suzerain vassal life. Of, of, you begin to discover how wonderful God is. That he's not just the owner of all things and the judge of all things and the maker of all things, but he's kind and generous and gentle and merciful and quick to forgive and slow to become angry. He's beautiful. Um, and Jesus is picked up, that same word is picked up of Jesus in Ephesians, that he is the beloved. So you go from the, 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 the sort of covenant language of love to this gravitational response which becomes more, where it is more like the love that you might feel for some deep friend or some husband or a spouse. It, it moves into that area. So that's, that's the, the essences of love. Let me just move on. This love is demanding. Love Love has got that tendency to be demanding. There is a jealousy in love, which is a good thing. You know, a wife who discovers that her husband is having sex with someone else and goes, no, it's okay, far better for me to be, you know, uh, or, or vice versa, her husband discovers that his wife's having sex with someone else. If they were just ho-hum, but you'd think there's something, is there something missing here? Is the relationship almost dead before it started that you don't care? that your partner is giving themselves to someone in that way which really belongs only there. There is a, there is a love, there's a, a way in which love calls the person into a sort of exclusiveness, which God clearly does. You shall have no other gods before me. That you, If you want to relate to the living and the true God, he is to be the undisputed master and centre and gravitational force of your life. So Jesus says in Matthew 10, quite shocking, it's one of the many shocking things Jesus says. Look in verse 37. Jesus says, the person who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The person who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. I mean, who does Jesus think he is, really? To say, you better not love your parents more than you love me. You better not love your kids more than you love me. If you do, you're not worthy. You don't get it. You don't realize who I am. This is the language of God where he calls for your utter supreme devotion. And he does it for all sorts of reasons. But he does it. Can we put that slide up, Chuck? Can we get that working? It's a quote from C.S. Lewis that someone else has put together. Oh, they're going to be, you've got to be quick. Don't go to sleep. Okay. Why does God demand this absolute supreme place in our life? For a number of reasons. And one of the reasons is because he's good and he loves you. If you build your happiness and your life on anything else, you are booking in for a horrendous grief experience. Now, life will break your heart anyhow in various ways. It's part of life in our broken world. But if you choose to make your partner or your work or your children or something else apart from God the very centre of your life, that's a fool's decision in the end because you've chosen to link yourself to something that must disintegrate. And because God knows and loves you, he says, link yourself to me. I will not let you down. I will not betray you. 
I will not leave you in death because everyone you love, if they don't betray you before death or leave you, they will in death. Either you will leave them through death or they will leave you through death. Part of what God is saying when he says, love me first and primary is because he loves you and his way will save you from uh, the death that comes through idolatry. Well, I need to finish at some time for, for, for questions. Let me finish on this. You go to the bottom of the page. There's the statement, really, that really, in, in a sense, expresses the whole thing the Bible's on about. We love. Why? Why do we love God? Why do we love others? We love because he first loved us. The Bible is on about God's love for us. It is not first or second or thirdly on about your love for God, nor is it on about your love for your neighbour. It's a story of God, how God has acted in Jesus, primarily. How God has come to us and shed blood so that we can know what he's like and come near to him and enjoy that gravitational love as we surround ourselves uh, around him. That's where the sunshine is found. I mean, the moon is a dull place, really, but it looks beautiful at night. Why? Because it's reflecting the light it's stolen happily from the sun. In and of itself, it's a dull thing. We we let God love us, and that, that is the thing that transforms us. Jesus is the great lover of God. You want to know what a lover of God looks like? It looks like Jesus. He loves God, and that's the heart and center of all things. And he's also the great cause of our love for God. So I remember when I looked at Pam and thought, you're lying, and then thought afterwards, well, she didn't look like a liar to me when she took out loving God. I was, maybe, maybe I'm the problem. Maybe I just haven't seen something yet. I haven't got something. So I embarked on a project that took me about two and a half years, I think, to try and understand how it's possible to love someone who is as great and as powerful as God. And it was in my second year at Bible College. Um, I was reading a particular book and I was praying. And I found my, I heard myself say to God, and I love you. And I went, whoa! I still remember sort of, what, what? Stop it. Um, and it was just in the end, when you get to know God over time, it, 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 and it may take... Took me a couple of years, it might take you longer, you may get there. Some people start their Christian life with an awareness of how wonderful God is, not just how true He is. But that's that's the thing. Because nobody, nobody loves you like God loves you. Nobody. No one's love is as rich and as beautiful and as faithful and as sacrificial as God's love. Woman rang up Barney's church at Broadway after it burnt down from down near Kuma said that when she heard it burnt down, she wanted to give a weekly or a monthly contribution to the building of the, out of her pension, an old age pension, I didn't have much money. And the secretary said, oh, that's lovely. Can I ask why? She said, oh, that church saved my life. She said, oh, when, when were you a member? She said, I was never a member. I've never been inside it. The secretary said, oh, please tell us more if you could. And it was 1941, I think. She was an orphan, uh, no mum or dad. She had a brother. He was in the Australian Army. He was in Singapore. Singapore had fallen to the, before the might of the Japanese Army. She didn't know if he was dead or imprisoned. Either way, it was grim, and she just felt utterly bereft. She said she was on a tram going down in front of Barney's, and she said, I was going to a job that I hated. Um, and she said, I just felt like death. She said, I looked across, and out the front of the church was a painted sign that said, nobody loves you like God loves you. And she got it. She got it, and she said, that saved my life, the recognition that no matter what was happening, there was a God who loved me, and that is what ignited her love for God, and that's how it works. I'll be quiet now, so we've got a few seconds for questions. Okay, now it's your turn.
Would you like to ask uh, Ian a question or make a comment about what you've heard today? As I said, you can do that by texting me. The number's up there. You could stick up your hand. I'll pass on the mic to you or you could fill out the blank sheet of paper inside the program. Stick up your hand and uh, Mark will collect that, pass it on to me. We need to thank Ian's friend Pam for yeah, Pam. <laughs> what she did years ago. Obviously, he didn't, didn't just prepare today's talk in a day or two. He's been working on it for several years. Decades. 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 So thanks for your work on that. Yeah. Pam's dead now, as it turned out. She died in an accident. Hmm. So, she's okay. Okay. Any questions from the floor? Anyone just want to yell out something, ask questions? Remember, it's not clear to you, it's not clear to anybody else, almost certainly. Yeah. yeah. Just from the uh, Matthew 10. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Uh, Matthew 10. Um, how would you go about explaining to a, a non-believer, um, yeah, who doesn't really know God or, or the Bible or the, um, you know, living life as a Christian about loving God? you know, more than loving a member of their own family. Yeah. yeah, it's a difficult topic yeah, to, to get across difficult. to someone, yeah. It seems, it seems to people who love their family almost wicked of Jesus or God to ask that. Um, it comes at a point when Jesus has spent quite a bit of time revealing who he is, and he's just been talking, if you just look at verse 32, that, that he holds the key ultimately to what will happen to us on the judgment day, therefore what will happen to us eternally. Um, and then he is, he's simply putting himself, well, not simply, but he's putting himself where God belongs. Um, so when I remember when I became a Christian and, and thought for a long time I should be single, because I think I thought that love and singleness in the Bible is an is a entirely honourable place to be. I thought, I'm not, I'm going to, because I think I thought that love was like a pie, and if you gave X amount of it to God, that was X amount you couldn't give. So if you gave X amount of it to your wife, that's X amount of love you couldn't give to God. Where I think it's the opposite of that, that if you love God and get caught up in that relationship, you will actually love your children far better, far more richly, far more wonderfully, and you'll be a much better son or daughter. But it will mean that in the end, your life will be controlled by the will of God, so that you may make decisions that your mum or dad or children may wish that you didn't make but because you're convinced that is what God wants you to do. So it really, I, I think, to put it, to go back to the loyalty question, who do I owe the most to? Who, who has the biggest right to call on my services? Well, I would think my children and my, my mother and my wife, I would think. But above and beyond that is clearly God. Everything I have comes from God. The ability to be comes from God. The air I breathe comes from God. So I owe far more to God than I do to all the people he's gifted me with around and hopefully has made me a gift rather than a curse to. So I think it's part of just seeing our, our essential obligation to the one who made us. And Jesus puts himself into that position, asks to be treated as only God should be treated. It's one of the many ways in which Jesus shows that he's God. I've got friends who want Jesus to stand up and say, I'm God. Um, and he just, he's, he's, he's a better teacher than that. He just keeps doing the things only God can do. Like in Luke 7, who's this guy think he is forgiving sin? The only person who can forgive sin is God. Um, so is that some sort of an answer, Tom? But it, 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 it is understandably offensive to people that Jesus would say that. Uh, here's a good question. How can we grow to love God more and more? Yes. Uh, well, I think the way forward is to... I want to sing a, a song to you, having <laughs> sung you a horror song. 
Um, one of the finest intellects I ever knew and was taught for a couple of years by, brought Knox when he was buried, mega brain. It was either when his coffin went out, because I didn't go to his funeral, it was, it was a way away, uh, or when his body was being lowered into the ground, had requested that the song that should be sung was Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, Look Full in His Wonderful Face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. So even as he was dying, he wanted people to turn their eyes away from him. And I think the way for is to discipline ourselves to reflect on, on the work and love of God in Jesus. It's one of the reasons why the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine that Jesus sets up, is so helpful. Because the one thing Jesus wants us to remember again and again, he sets up one ritual, as it were, and it's not about his lordship, and it's, not a, it's about the fact that he dies for us. So it's to... I, the thing that helped me, I think, move to loving God was I worked for a year with a man called Reg Hanlon who was obsessed with the cross. He couldn't preach for more than two minutes without getting, getting back to the cross. Um, some people hated it. Because, but uh, it's that. It's looking again and again at what God has done, what it's cost him to set us so free. So it's to... And I think to pray the old prayer, which I've suggested, uh, which predates God's spell. I thought it was a God's spell invention. But it's a very old prayer. Three things I pray to see you more clearly love you more dearly, follow you more nearly. And that was the prayer I prayed almost daily, I think, that I would see him more clearly and love him more dearly. Because when the first happens, the second happens. Yep, okay, I think we'll leave the questions there okay. for the moment. Thank you. All right, uh, well, just some other things that we'd like you to think about. Uh, first of all, it'd be great... If you could fill out the response form inside your program today. One of the reasons is we just love occasionally knowing who's actually coming to our meetings. We, we appreciate your feedback. So please, please fill that out. I'll just give you a minute or so to do that. Thanks, and you could just leave, leave that in the middle of the table, fold it in half, and we'll collect it later. Secondly, Mark is going to tell us about a young workers event that's coming up. Uh, what are your boss's expectations on you? How about your parents, your colleagues, your peers, and maybe even yourself? What are your expectations on others? Well, the young workers are getting together and we're holding a special event. Uh, Ian Powell will be speaking again for us and it's on the 8th of July. Uh, registration closes next Thursday and we're going to look at this topic of great expectations. Which ones do we meet? Which ones don't we meet? Do expectations chain us down or are expectations something that help us get through life? 
So come join us to hear Ian speak. We've also got uh, Megan Cole, who's a senior associate at one of the top law firms, and she's going to be also sharing some of her experiences as she's progressed as a lawyer on how to handle expectations. So come yourself if you're a young worker, or if you know other young workers, please invite them. Registration closes next Thursday. Thanks, Mark. Also, today is, is the last in our series for this month on the topic of loving your neighbour and loving God. So what's coming up in July? I wonder if anyone knows. Well, if you don't know, here's, here's a one-minute video. So that's something that's a bit different, isn't it, at the forum? The forum goes to the flicks. So we'll be looking at the intersection between movies and Hollywood and the Bible. And next week, uh, particularly, there's a three-person panel that are discussing how Hollywood has stolen lots and lots of themes from the Bible for their movies. We should send them a bill for that, shouldn't we? Get them to pay us for it. Also, as part of that package next month, on a Tuesday night, that's not the one I was after, or that one, it's inside your program. Uh, we've booked a theatre and we're going to see Planet, uh, Planet of the Apes. You ask, why would the forum go and see Planet of the Apes? Because we're in the business of getting people to ask the bigger questions. And often in movies like that, there are philosophical questions that come out of the movie that are good discussion starters about life, about justice, about where the world's going. And so we would love you to come along and also to invite friends from work, whether they're from a religious background or not. We just want people coming along, watching the movie, and there's going to be a panel discussion afterwards. It's a great bargain, $10, and you get popcorn plus a drink, and you can register via the City Bible Forum website. Well, to close the meeting, I'm going to ask Ian Powell to lead us in prayer. Okay. As you know, we don't often pray, but let's pray, and you can join with me if you'd like. If not, you can just have a sleep. Our great God, our maker and our judge, thank you that you reach out to us. Thank you that you show us what you are like through the creation, through your world. And above all, and so clearly, in Jesus Christ, your Son, and in his death for us. And today we want to commit ourselves, perhaps for the first time, or perhaps 
for the hundredth time to live our lives in loyalty to you, uh, to live our lives treating you as God. And we ask that you would help us to know you better so that the language of love would become the only language that works for us. Help us to show our love for you today by loving those we work with and spend our time with. And we pray for your strength in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, everyone. Have a great afternoon. The recording that you have just listened to is from the City Bible Forum. For more information about City Bible Forum events in your city or to order other talks, please visit citybibleforum.org.